This sermon was recorded at Highway Palo Alto in Palo Alto, California. If you'd like to find out more about Highway Community, you can head to www.highway.org. If you can turn with me into Galatians, uh, we're in Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 26. Uh, And by way of kind of introduction, I'd like to remind you that we're in this series called Set Free to Live Free. And as we're going through Paul's letter to the Galatians, he's really addressing, he's addressing this group of Jewish Christians who have come into the Galatian church, or they're part of the Galatian church, and they're causing division. They're building up barriers by soliciting a distorted version of the gospel of Christ. They took the gospel that was received in grace through faith in Jesus, and they added to it the need to be Jewish, the need to follow the Hebrew law, the need to be circumcised in order to fully receive God's blessing, in order to fully receive God's justification. And for Paul, the reason why he's writing to the Galatians is because this is blasphemy. Needing anything more than Christ, it's not good news to us. It's no longer gospel. As we move into this text and examine Paul's argument, I want us just to remember in the back of our minds that as he starts in this letter, he he shares this experience that he had with the apostle Peter, the guy who who walked on water with Jesus, who at one point in the ministry to the church, he was sharing the gospel and eating and breaking bread with these Gentiles, these non-Jewish people who come into the church. But then he was persuaded and swayed the opposite way by a a sect of Jewish Christians who said, hey, you have to be Jewish to be a good Christian. So Peter stopped eating with these Gentiles and only associated with the Jewish Christians. And Paul opposed him on this matter. And he said in in his words in Galatians 2.14, they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. So in our passage today, we're looking at how Paul delivers this one specific truth of the gospel, that our adoption in Christ is what should define our identity as individuals and as a community. This gospel truth that our adoption in Christ is what should define us as individuals and as a community. I'd like to uh, read our passage for today in Galatians. Galatians 3.26 verses 4 through 7. As you find it, it's quite a ways through your Bible. It's around all the different ENs, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Um, And as as I read this, I would really love for you to imagine the passion, the earnestness that Paul is actually writing into this, the importance of his words here. Verse 26. So in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heir according to the promise. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by the father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. 
But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. And the spirit calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Asking the question, what defines us or who you are, is critical. It's critical to understand our identity because it affects our relationship with God and it affects our relationship with others. Who we understand ourselves to be or others to be directly impacts those relationships. So as we move through this, we're going to ask a few questions. We're going to ask what defines us, what used to define us, and how our new identity affects us. Okay, so what defines us, what used to define us, and how our new identity impacts or affects us. Asking who you are, though, it can be a really invasive and sometimes nerve-wracking question. And like it or not, we often are judged or judge others by their responses. Who are you? It's not always the case, but sometimes just one word or one thing that you say could like, completely break a friendship or create one. When I taught fifth grade uh, at a private school in Tracy, California, my hometown, uh, I made a wall for my students for them to put up different artifacts that helped explain uh, or define or show who they were. And we called it, uh, What Makes Me Move? That was the name of the wall or the question that was on it. And on this wall, there were pictures of families. There was, picture, there was like different flags from countries, sports memorabilia, Pokemon cards, Taylor Swift icons, stuffed animals even. They got really, really inventive in how they got this stuff just to stay on the wall. Um, and I had my own section that I had up there. You can see some different things. I have a construction hat, an A's hat. I have a little plaque that shows I was a, I was a scholar athlete in, in college. I have a picture of my guitar. Um, these are things that I, re- that really, I really enjoy doing. Um, and they're, they're a sense of identity. Now I want you guys to just think just briefly, if you had a wall like this, what would you put up there? So if you can kind of imagine that. Maybe if you want to write it down, you can write it down. Just imagine what would be up there. I have a rodeo ticket. I have a hat that I would like to go swing dancing in. I just, I, I want us to just begin our process here by actively thinking through how we either define ourselves or wish to be perceived or defined by others. So as we do that, um, keep that in mind. We'll come back to this a little later, but let's head into the scripture here and look at Paul's definition of our identity. So what defines us? And just to refresh our memory, we're going to read Galatians three twenty six through 29 again. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. It's really easy to see just in these few verses how... how much there 
is about identity here. And Paul is really intent on getting his audience to recognize that their identity first and foremost is in Christ. And I think as Christians who grew up in the church or have been a part of a church for a while, it's really easy for us to gloss over this in Christ phrase. We hear it all the time, but we miss the significance. You know, we hear like, I'm in Christ. I can do all things in Christ. I love you in Christ, but you know, you're really wrong. But think seriously about what this means to be in Christ. I mean, Paul uses this Six times, five times here. Verse 26, so in Christ you are all children. Verse 27, you were baptized into Christ and have closed yourselves with Christ. In 28, you are all one in Christ. In 29, if you belong to Christ, you are heirs. This into, with, in, in Christ identity, it denotes a, a current and active trusting relationship with Jesus. And it directly impacts our life. It directly impacts our identity. This in Christ means that we have a current and active trusting relationship with Jesus and it impacts our identity in our life. As each person who heard Paul's words for the first time, um, as they heard them, they would be confronted to consider how they define themselves. And in Paul's view, what Paul is saying here, he says, we're defined as children. As one, as Abraham's descendants, as heirs, solely because we are in Christ. Our relationship and trust of Christ becomes our central defining quality. It's so central, it's so defined, so pervasive that all other qualities no longer carry weight. And the primary identity that we're going to look at this morning is this inclusion into God's family, the fact that we are children of God. And actually, I want to take a brief detour here to talk about this, this idea of us being children of God. In verse 26, it says, you are all children of God through faith. There's a Greek word for children here. Um, this Greek word is called, it's, the word is eos. And this word eos is actually used like six times later on in this passage that we're looking at in verses four through seven of chapter four. But it's typically translated as sons. Here and in different places, we see certain translations translate this word eos as children instead of sons to help uh, promote gender equality, to, to help promote inclusiveness. But I think we should trust Paul's use of eos here. There are other words he could have used to say children, and he does so in this passage. But here he, tip, he uses son, I believe, purposefully. We know that Paul isn't gender biased. I mean, look at 28. So there's no male or, or female. Okay. But think in this first century context why he would say son. Why would he say a son of God? In the first century, to be a son meant to have all the rights and the responsibility in the family. To be a son, if your father passed away, you would assume the rights and responsibilities, the, the responsibility of your unmarried sisters even. In, in this old world, the status and power of the son, it meant everything. It was a form of power. And so if we were to understand Paul to say that in Christ we are all sons of God rather than children, then he is actually, he's actually elevating the status of women. 
He's actually elevating the status of the slave. He's actually elevating the status of Gentiles to inclusion into God's family. And it's from this that Paul is able to make his point uh, and address people's race and socioeconomic status and gender status in verse 28. In the first century, there was this daily prayer that was prayed by some Jews. It was a blessing that went something like this. Blessed be God that he did not make me a Gentile. Blessed be God that he did not make me an ignorant or slave. Blessed be God that he did not make me a woman. How terrible. But in contrast, and possibly very purposefully, Paul writes this in verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul is redefining our most core identities. These identities which in the first century carried loads of power. Do they carry power today? Your race, your gender, your socioeconomic status? As I read this, we can't help but be being asked, so who am I? How am I defined? And we need to take this question seriously of who I am because how I define my identity, it shows where my values are. And when something is valued and desired by other people, that gives power. It gives the power to either build barriers or to create a community. This is the problem that Paul's addressing. There's a group of people in the church who are saying, we are in Christ and we are Jewish. These are our values. And I'm better than you. And you need to be like me. Their Jewishness was a form of power. In their, and that being their identity was a form of power which built up barriers within their community. This heightened, this heightened value created an elitism and it forced expectations or un, unnecessary desires on those who weren't Jewish. And in so doing, that's what distorts Jesus' gospel of grace. And they turn it into a gospel of works or saying a gospel of I'm better than you or a gospel of you're not good enough yet. That's not a gospel of grace. That's not good news. That's not gospel. And the identity that Paul wants us to look at, the identity that Jesus wants us to have is that we are defined through our sonship in Christ. And to unpack this, we're going to look into uh, chapter 4, where Paul unpacks it. He talks about, in verses 1 through 3, what used to define us. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Paul here is using this, this imagery of being enslaved. He uses it earlier in his argument talking about the law and how, how these Jewish Christians were enslaved to the law. Paul brilliantly explains, though, that the law was just a temporary holding place. That God had told Abraham that he would bless the world and bless, he would bless his family and bless the world. 
but that wasn't fully given and fully received until the time of Jesus. And in between was the law. It was a temporary holding place. It was a babysitter. It was kind of like someone who's in high school, waiting to go to college, waiting to start a job, and that graduation day comes, and they're like, nah, I understand I'm graduating, but I just want to stay here. I just want to kick it with my friends, you know? Stay. You're, you're enslaved to this. What happened was that these people, they were stuck in their identity with the law. And they were finding their fulfillment in the law rather than moving forward into maturity, into this era of grace with Christ. And that's what it means when Paul is saying that we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces. It wasn't a negative thing back then. It was healthy. It was needed. But now as we have this opportunity to step out of that into something grander, that's what makes it slavery. For the Jews, the identity, their identity through the law was a spiritual force that they were enslaved to. For the Gentiles, it was their identity through different idols in which they were enslaved to, these spiritual forces. And Paul makes mention of that elsewhere in Galatians to define that. But amid this discussion on identity, Paul urges the Gentiles to realize that when they hold their identity and blessing in something besides Jesus, they are enslaving themselves. So how do we see that in our own lives? How do we see ourselves being enslaved in an identity outside of Christ? Because this not only isolates us from God in a, in a relationship of trust, a relationship of transformation, but it, it pits us against those in our community. As I was talking through this with David Haley, who is uh, preaching this passage at our Mountain View campus today, he, he explained it. He was right on when he said, this all comes back to pride. For, for one reason or another, I want to be good. I want to be better. I want to justify myself. I want to be the best. But when I say I have to be the best, I have to be better, that means someone has to be worse. When I start elevating myself, there's people who naturally are going to be devalued. Um, What I'd like to do is just go briefly back to this image of the board that I had for my fifth grade class. Now, some of these things are top layer. They're superficial, right? I'm an A's fan. I play soccer. I like to swing dance. These things are superficial. They're kind of top layer. But what if I had a board up there with deeper identities, deeper values of who I thought I was? What if you had a board that showed your deeper identity, deeper values? On mine, I would probably say I'm an oldest brother. My brothers look up to me. I have a form of value and power in that. I would probably say that I have a master's of divinity. This is me being honest. I'd probably say that I'm a pretty good servant. I would probably say that I have blue-collar roots. I can build stuff. I find pride in that. I would definitely, I would definitely say that I can grow a beard, even though I don't have it right now. I find pretty big value in that. Some of these, though, they outweigh others, of course. But these deep identities, these deep values that we have are important. This is what Paul is saying, do not go back into. 
Do not become enslaved to those. One of those values for me that's so easy for me to slip into is my identity of serving. I work at a church. I pastor people. I teach people. I organize events. I serve. And for me, serving is one of the most highest values that you can have. In fact, you see all throughout the Bible, right? Jesus asks us to take up our cross, to love one another, to consider others higher than yourself. And that is good, and that is what we should do. But as soon as I take that identity of me being a servant, a good servant, and elevate that above my identity in Christ, it becomes slavery. I begin justifying myself by how much I serve or how much I don't serve. I compare myself to other people either saying, oh man, they serve way more than me. They're so much better Christians. Or I'm way better than them because I serve, they don't. Which, by the way, we did the recruitment thing earlier. I can help you serve more. Or work through the sanctification process as I am working on. But having this identity, even though it can be a good and virtuous thing, as soon as it goes above my identity in Christ, I start judging myself and others through it, that's when it becomes slavery. It's when I start saying that to be a real Christian, you have to serve. Or when I don't serve, I just feel like a kind of Christian. These are the spiritual forces. These are slavery. This is what Paul is vehemently challenging the Judaizers in. When they say, to be a real Christian, you have to be Jewish. Oh, man. I mean, fill in the blank. What do you say? To be a real Christian, you have to be a servant. You have to worship with a certain style. You have to drink Red Rock coffee. Maybe you have to be conservative. Maybe you have to be liberal in your political views. Maybe you have to be in tech. Maybe you have to have an iPhone. What makes you a real Christian? As we do this, we enslave ourselves and we enslave others into those values, into those identities. And it creates barriers as we grasp for power and as they grasp for power. The only thing we ought to say is that to be a real Christian is to be in Christ. So how does this identity, how is our new identity as sons, adopted into sonship, how does that affect us? So this, this phrase, adopted into sonship, it could be seen as an antiquated or sexist term, but remember that for those in the first century, this term meant power. And it elevates everyone who's, in, who's within Christ who is that son. And it puts us all on the same field. And the first way that it does that is that our adoption in Christ, it humbles all of us. Let's look at verses 4 and 5 in chapter 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Our adoption, it should humble us and put us all in the same field because of all these different humiliating actions we see take place. First, we see that God sent his son to be born of a woman, meaning that God took on human form. That's humbling. 
He's also born under the law. This paradigm that he created, he now has to live by. He's lived among the humans. It also says that Christ redeemed us out of the law. Not only did God have to humble himself to buy us out of the mess that we got in. That's humbling. But there's more. So not only did Jesus redeem us out of slavery to our idols, but he also brought us into adoption. And that's humbling. Adoption is full sons, full heirs to God. I don't deserve to be redeemed, but I have been. And I don't deserve to be an heir. But those are humbling. What strikes me the most, though, isn't even this. What brings me to my knees is at the beginning of verse 4. Look at the beginning of verse 4. It says, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son. What humbles me is that God has been planning this. He's been thinking. He's been waiting. He's been setting things up. The father is giving up the son. The son is leaving his father. Jesus is giving up his life and dying, paying, redeeming, redeeming me. And why? Because way back when, when sin entered the world through humanity and our relationship with God was severed, way back then, God looked forward into the future. He looked forward to the day when Christ would die and rise again. And he said, that's the day. That's the day when I get them back. That's their adoption day. That's the day they become my children again. Can you imagine the excitement of adopting a kid, bringing a, bringing a child into your family for parents? And for the kid. How, how much time and energy is put into that? How many hours of classes? How much vetting? How much paperwork? How much searching and then being rejected and searching and being rejected and searching? And then finally, as adoption day gets there, the loads of emotion, of joy, of delightment, of excitement that are there for the parents and the child. How much more is it for God when someone receives adoption into his family? How much more should it be for us? But what Paul is witnessing here is that there are folks who have seen this. There's folks who have even been part of this adoption experience and who've gone back to this old way of life, this old identity And they're taking the joy of the gospel of being adopted into God's family. They're taking it away from themselves and they're taking it away from others. They're saying that being Jewish is more important. I'll tell you that the most important thing, there's nothing more important than what your creator and what your father says about you and who you are. And you are his child. You are his heir. And no one ought to take that from you. And you ought to not take that from anyone else. In Paul's words, let anyone who preaches a different gospel be cursed. 
to take the focus off of our identity with Christ as heirs of God. To do that, it keeps us from fully experiencing a relationship with God, a relationship of blessing and of grace, and fully experiencing community with one another. But not only does our adoption humble us all to the same state, but it also elevates us. And looking at these final two verses, verses 6 and 7, I want to read, Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. We're humbled because we're brought out of the slavery and into and made heirs. But even in our inheritance, we're lifted up, we're elevated because God has sent his spirit to reside in us. We have no excuse to see fellow Christians as less than or greater than ourselves because we all have God inside of us. We all have that relationship with Jesus. And this elevates our, our new identities far above any other identity we could ever have. I love that this spirit, it says the spirit calls out to God for us on our behalf. This word Abba, it's a, it's a nearness, it's a trust relationship with the father. It's like when my five-year-old niece, she goes, Daddy, Daddy, look at me, help me. She's swimming in the pool. The Spirit does this calling, this crying out on our behalf. And the Spirit draws us all into this deeper relationship with the Father. A deeper relationship and connection and community with one another as fellow heirs. And the Spirit guides us into how to live that responsible, mature life as an heir of God. And we see that later in verse 5, what the fruits of the Spirit are when he's actively present in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience. But for now, we must take delight in knowing that in being adopted, all of our statuses are elevated. This isn't just an intellectual ascent, though. This is what we need to take away from this. Paul says that we were slaves. This is a daily process of us redefining who we are in light of our adoption. This is a daily process of us redefining how we see others in light of their adoption or their potential adoption. So do you, do you find yourself thinking others should be like you, just conform to your identity, your way of life? Or do you find yourself thinking, I wish I was like them? So I was driving down the road on Friday. There was a group of like six Harleys that all pulled up next to me. And I was like, oh man, I wish I was like them. I'm like in the middle of writing a sermon, like, oh, that has to go in the sermon now. Okay, I get it. There's, there's those like superficial ways that, that we want to be like others, we want others to be like us, but there's those deeper ways too. So how do we, how do we humble our own identities in Christ so that we're all on the same playing field? And how do we elevate others when we see them as different or outsiders to be on the same playing field? You know, do you, do you see other people, even those who are not Christian, do you see them as problems that need to be fixed or changed? Or do you see them 
as individuals who God is longing to adopt and send his spirit into. I mean, how, how would redefining our own identity in Christ as adopted heirs, how would that challenge the way we identify and value with race? How would it change the way we value gender or economic status if we were all sons and heirs to God? How would that challenge the way you value your age or your generation? How would it challenge your parenting style, your family style? How would it challenge your value of worship styles, of occupations, of theological stances or training or, or denomination? How could seeing a, non, a non-Christian as someone who God longs to adopt, how could that create a new relationship for you? One that doesn't matter on race or hobbies or musical taste or stances on abortion or gay marriage or transgender equality. I wonder what it would look like if we could take these three minutes out of the week, this week, to take a moment and redefine ourselves, lowering ourselves onto the same playing field as everyone else because we're adopted in Christ and elevating others as those who are also adopted. It would take like three minutes. And then you're just going up and saying hello to someone. Think of someone who you think is different, an outsider. You could even do this after the worship service. I mean, think what it would be like to see the joy, to see the smiles, to see the laughter when everyone is on the same playing field. When it doesn't matter what someone looks like or what someone does, but you can just say hello and enjoy our relationship with them. This is my hope and my vision for our community, to start here and to go out into our larger community. But it starts by seeing and defining ourselves and others as adopted heirs in God. I'm going to invite the band and the ushers for communion to come up, please. As we close and move into this time of communion, as the cup and the bread is passed to you. They symbolize the body and they symbolize the blood of Christ that gives us our new identity. As these elements are passed and you can take them as they're given to you, please use the time to reflect. Use it to celebrate this identity that we have in Christ and this community that we receive through our relationship with him and our identity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our identity, our identity in Christ, our identity as heirs to you, as your children. Lord, I pray that just today, even, that we would begin to see ourselves in the light of this, that we would begin to see others in light of this fact. Lord, I pray that we're able to receive the grace that you want to give us, this good news. We love you and we pray that you work in our midst and we might respond to you now. Christ Jesus, amen.
change the tune.